In the second part of this episode, where we talk to healthcare and patient engagement experts, Dr. Ellen Half-Davies and Dr. Paul Wicks, we're going to learn more about how engineers and patients can collaborate together in the development of new healthcare technologies. Hello, and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast produced by the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which presents conversations with leaders from health, care, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and in this episode of The Evidence Space, we're welcoming back Dr. Ellen Havdavies, CEO of Aparito Healthcare, and Dr. Paul Wicks of Wicks Digital Health. Ellen, Paul, welcome back to the conversation. What are your thoughts on the impact of COVID-19 in terms of the ability of patients and engineers to collaborate effectively? I, I guess, you know, COVID is, is, is obviously devastating and uh, nobody would ever wish for, for anything as a sort of scale of devastation that we're seeing from COVID. But if there is a way of turning it into some positive, uh, I think from our side, what we're seeing is that it has propelled sort of remote monitoring and digital outcomes from becoming or from being a nicety into becoming a necessity. And and finally, people are thinking, actually, yes, this is important. This is, um, you know, we can't imagine what the burden of traveling long distance, the specialist centers to sit in clinic rooms for four hours to have about 20 minutes worth of consultations and tests is on patients. And if any good can come out for from COVID uh, for the patient community, I think uh, I'd like to see it as a new approach moving forward, where having care in your home and remote patient monitoring and sort of being brought into hospital just when you need to, um, and sort of that final kind of acceptance that digital and technology could could be something worthwhile is is an approach that I'd like to see. And also, you know, clinical trials is a great way of being at the forefront of what can what can be an option in your disease particularly if it's a life-limiting life-threatening one but you're again very limited to if you live in the country that the clinical trials are being done if you live close to the sites that are being done or if your family unit is one that you can take time off work that you can't afford taxis to get to train stations and that sort of aspects and you know maybe we can make clinical trials and the forefront of science more accessible to all patients and not those that are just in a situation to, to take part. So Ellen, at Aparito specifically, how have you adjusted your pr- approach in response to COVID-19? From Aparito's point of view, even though we're, we're five, six years old, this was always the goal for us. I'd had you know, seen too many patients really struggle to travel. You know, we had patients flying in from different countries every month and the impact and the stress that it had and, you know, the tests. And and then from a regulatory point of view, then seeing really messy data that just left us with inconclusive data and all of that effort was sort of made redundant. And so, you know, for the last five, six years, this is what we've been trying to advocate, really trying to push forward. Um, and so our platform has been designed with this in mind and what COVID has done is propelled it forward more in five months than I was able to achieve in the previous five years, um, which is a sort of a, a bittersweet place to be, I think. And Paul, how about you? Have you noticed any impact or adjustments with the companies that you're working with as a result of the current pandemic? 
Well, in terms of decentralized trials, um, so the company I worked for, Patients Like Me, was, was a pioneer in this space. And we actually ran a decentralized trial about um, 10 years ago uh, in a drug called lithium, and then a few years later with a nutritional supplement called curcumin. Um, and one of the things that was um, you know, striking was the patients loved this approach. They loved that they didn't have to come to clinic too often. They loved that you know, they could submit the data, but they also felt part of the community of people engaged in the trial itself. Um, but on the flip side, I would say that the clinical researchers were actually um, at, at best lukewarm to this. Because from their point of view, if you're some professor at an elite institution, you quite like the patients coming to you. You get to see them. You get to hire staff and you get to build your grants and you get to build your kingdom. And ultimately, if the size of your grant is based on time and motion because it's cost plus, then actually a decentralized trial makes you spend resources somewhere else. So now instead of having a few research fellows that you can hang around with and share some clinical work with, now you've got to hire a bunch of technologists and techno people with a whole bunch of stuff that might break. So it's actually a very different culture and a different set of disciplines that the clinical researchers need to embrace. Um, and so whilst it was, it was clear that we could do trials faster and cheaper, it's not necessarily the case that clin clinical researchers that are the leads on this want to do research much quicker and cheaper. Um, they might want to do it more thorough and rigorously and getting into a higher impact journal. But it, it was important to see those incentives aligned. So what COVID has done is said, well, you don't get a choice. You know, most of the patient communities that I work with have been shielded uh, for the past however many months and um, you know, for, for very good reason. Or even people with conditions that you might not think of as life-threatening are taking immunosuppressant drugs, um, which could put them in a much higher risk category. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of um, you know, split that issue apart um, and also been um, something that they, they call in, in consumer marketing research a seeding trial. So you might hear the famous story of when 3M made post-its. And the first thing they did is sent out loads of free post-its to all the secretaries in the United States. Uh, and the idea was to get them to try to use them and just get, get them into their uh, you know, experience of everyday life. It's the same with Zoom and Skype and what have you. All these technologies that clinicians will have resisted for all these you know, IT reasons or difficulty with the NHS. If now it's just become the standard and they've all had to try it out in one context, it becomes a lot easier to then say, well, gosh, I could do this for a study visit. Um, you know, up until now, I could name on one hand the number of Parkinson's physicians who you could see for a Skype call. You know, a lot of Parkinson's assessments is, is you know, your eyeballing of how well people can do stuff like this. Now, I think if um, you know, the, the right reimbursement codes come in the US um, and the right safety and liabilities in place, it's going to become quite common for these outpatient follow-up uh, visits to become remote. And then it's not much of a step to say, oh, we can collect some data whilst we were here, um, and then to become um, much more integrated in both our clinical practice and our research practice. But I'd imagine it's in some cases, it's not just as straightforward as simply transposing what was previously a physical consultation onto Zoom or onto Skype. In which case, does that create new opportunities to develop technology to make this more effective or new approaches that mitigate the fact that you don't have the advantage of being in the same room as the patient? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that I've seen over time is you see technologies go from it's a box the size of a house to it's in your pocket. But then the other thing that happens is it's a box that needs a team of expert technicians to you can pick it up in Boots or Walgreens. Um, and we've seen this with pulse oximeters. You know, uh, could you ever imagine when, when you were a child, uh, for roughly the same age, how big a pulse oximeter would have been? And, you know, probably only an anesthetist or someone could use it. Um, I could probably get, you know, 20 off eBay for a fiver or something like that. Uh, at the moment. So, so we do see that the movement of these technologies and also as things like Bluetooth and other standards 
um, become much more prevalent. It's becoming increasingly sort of interoperable um, in this space. That said, though, I think there are there are some concerns, and we have seen that you know these mass-produced consumer-oriented devices don't have the same quality as maybe a more traditional medical device. There was even some um, some warnings going around about sort of fake head thermometers, infrared fake thermometers uh, coming off eBay. I think where every time you press the button, it said a variation of thirty-seven degrees, uh, but someone did a breakdown and it's just a battery and a display, and it just you know. Said, said 37 degrees and there was no infrared uh, sensor in there at all. So we still have to be a little bit cautious with this stuff. But no, I do think there'll be a lot of innovation where people will say, well, what are all the gizmos and gadgets that, that we used to use? How can we develop that? How can we validate that? You know, whether that's blood tests being done with a, a drop of blood from your finger into a little tube and, and sent off, um, right up to, you know, can you wear something for 24 hours? Uh, you know, can people put on their own ECGs and stuff like that? Reliable. Is it reliable enough that, that it could be? Um, useful. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. So more generally, there are very clear signs of how the technology has developed over the last couple of decades. Ellen, from your perspective, how about the culture of engaging with patients in the design process over that same time span? Oh, massively. I would say, you know, 20 years ago, there was nothing. Then we started talking about it. Uh, then there was what what we you know would often call sort of tokenism. You know, we would sort of design everything and then maybe get them to read a patient information sheet to to sort of uh, convey that they understood the language in it. But you know, by that point, it was way too late. Um, and then you know, we have gone from understanding aspects such as patient input, patient involvement, patient engagement, and now sort of patient co creation and. Um, all these sort of words and and, and changes in um, kind of perception, it, it's still not sort of where it should be, but I think we have made great stride. And I often describe it as the sort of um, kind of the, the perfect storm. So you have the, the digital and the sort of uh, internet and the availability so that patients can become more um, sort of empowered. And therefore, uh, you know, the, the sort of patients are now demanding everything in the way that they do their banking, that they do their shopping, that they do other day-to-day aspects. And so, uh, you know, it, it's positive to see that uh, it's finally moving, but it, in some ways it, it's crazy to think that it's taking 20 years to, to get to where we are. Something that Paul mentioned earlier was PPI or public patient involvement. And you've both noted how of a much more fundamental and integrated part of device technology design that is today compared to maybe a few years ago where some people might have treated it as a bit of a box ticking exercise. I know for certain that R&D funders pay much closer attention now to the level of consultation, meaningful consultation with patients that developers have had before they provide funding. And you've both been very clear about why that should be. You need to design for patients in a way that reflects the data they can actually collect and also the way in which they're going to interact with a device or technology. I imagine a large segment of our audience represent the small, medium enterprise, SME or startup sector. So I'd like to finish by asking both of you, Ellen, first, what's been the effect of the attention of wearable device manufacturers, people like Google and Apple in this space over the last few years, particularly on companies such as yours? Do you know, without going on a complete sort of rant, I do have uh, 
quite serious concerns that the, you know, the way the tech companies operate in terms of company values, company principles, ethical approaches of the tech industry do not operate well within the health sector. And I do worry that we are going to have uh, a sort of really significant culture clash between the values, the principles and the ethics of tech, that the major tech industries and, uh, you know, the healthcare. Now, if we look at the sort of closest comparison we can have is the pharmaceutical industry. And obviously, over the years, you know, we've had major incidents where pharmaceutical industries have sort of behaved badly and therefore the regulation has had to sort of up its game every single time there's been an incident. Now what that means is that the regulators operate in a very reactive knee-jerk behavior when a pharmaceutical company does something untoward or, or bad practices and then the regulation tends to sort of go way over the top some would say because the companies didn't necessarily have the values um, within the organization to work within a sort of moral compass or societal contract that was for the benefit of all. Now, my worry, and I will get to the point at some point, but it, it's something I feel quite strongly about, is that if we push the working principles, values, ethics of the tech sector onto the healthcare sector, we are going to have an incident, whether it's a data breach, whether it's a safety issue, whether it's patient death there is something going to happen. Um, and that will mean that the regulators will have to have this, you know, overreaction knee jerk to pacify the Daily Mail front page and to demonstrate that they are reacting. And that will then have a major impact on the sector in the way that the lidomide reaction meant that the progress of drug development slowed. And, you know, it probably had an unexpected consequences of making drugs available to other patients safely much, much slower. Um, and, you know, what, what's the ethics of that? And so one bad apple in the cart for this sector could have a devastating effect for everybody else. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that does worry me considerably. So what's your advice to the good actors, people who understand that there are clinical standards and ethical standards out there? How can they insulate themselves from one of these potentially huge missteps? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really tough one because you need to bring your investors along with you. You need to bring your clients along with you and you need to remind them why, you know, why are we taking twice as long to get something done than the competitor? Why can't we just launch a fail fast product and, and re sort of pivot every single week? Uh, and, you know, why are we not able to sort of, you know, be as glitzy or glossy as the competitor? when they're seeing them having their higher valuations and their, you know, glossier sort of whatever. And and so it, it's, it's a lot of education, but it's a lot of patience and it's a lot of trusting your own judgment when everybody around you seems to be doing it in a way that doesn't quite fit right for you. Definitely food for thought. Paul, from your perspective, having worked in maybe a more of a device agnostic setting, looking at the data in particular, how do you strike the right balance between that break early and often approach that comes from the tech sector um, to the maybe the potential advantages from that in terms of how you develop using very standardized data that's predictable from just one or two device manufacturers? How do you get the balance right? 
Yeah, so I think the, the move fast and break things uh, is one of several of the <clears throat> big tech culture issues that, uh, that Alan mentioned that I think could, could be problematic. Um, I think an example that people might be interested in looking into if they haven't already seen it is a group called the Open APS group, the Open Artificial Pancreas System, I think, um, also known by the hashtag, we are not waiting. And it's this example where patients were looking, uh, and it's particularly patients living with type 2 diabetes or who are parents of children with type 1 diabetes, were looking at the slow, careful, methodical 10, 20-year life cycle of continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps. And saying, you know, they saw this presentation a few years ago by the companies and they said, you know, maybe in you know, five, six years time, we'll have this closed loop where instead of you having to go, I'm going to prick my finger several times a day, calculate my insulin, get my insulin, or maybe I have a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of weeks when you're first being diagnosed. To instead say, well, if you have a continuous glucose monitor, some algorithms, uh, and an insulin pump, you could, in theory, close that loop yourself. And the patients looked at this and they looked at their children who, for example, couldn't have a sleepover uh, with their friends could go away to a holiday camp because they, the parents were so afraid they couldn't monitor their children, keep an eye on things, that they said, we are not waiting. And so they hacked it together themselves. And it's a fascinating story, been very well, well covered in the, the scientific medical regulatory literature because they used um, older versions of CGMs with poor security. They used Raspberry Pis. They open sourced the code um, and they built a community on Facebook as it happened where thousands of, of users of this system were, were sharing their information and sharing their, their views. So, so this is sort of a living case study, if you will, of exactly what you said. And as you can imagine, um, regulators would be very nervous about this and, and clinicians would be very nervous about this. Um, it's been reassuring, though, that, that it was people in the community who actually have engineering backgrounds. Um, it, so this wasn't um, sort of wingnut inventors thinking, oh, I'll just plug these things together and see what happens. So they took a very cautious approach. And it is their health, after all. So, so in their view, they are making appropriate benefit risk trade-offs. And I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about, is that more sound than ethicists sitting around thinking about this? Um, so that clinical trial, the decentralized trial I've mentioned earlier, two people have written their PhD thesis entirely about what a bad idea that was. So, you know, um, but that, that came out seven years after it already happened, right? So, so I think the academic thing can be so slow and such a lagging indicator that actually it's really interesting to see the sort of energy that goes into it. But no, pe people are, are aware. And, and, and one of my colleagues used to say, well, we live in a society where you can drive a car. Probably the most dangerous thing you can do. Uh, you can go buy a chainsaw. You can smoke a cigarette. In America, you can go buy a gun. In the grand scheme of things, fiddling around with devices and you know, unplug it if it doesn't feel safe, you know, that has to be seen in a, broader, in a broader context. So I think it is an exciting and disruptive space. Um, a little bit of scary is OK. Um, but the question is, how do we make sure that that's not exploited um, and, you know, it, it doesn't become an extractive thing where large companies are, are getting a big monopoly and then, you know, with a little tweak here and there, you know, they, they, they're able to target things or, or, or boost their revenue. So I, I think, yeah, transparency is the key. You know, I'd recommend people contribute to initiatives where we improve clinical reporting guidelines. So things like the consult spirit AI guideline extensions coming out soon will make it much clearer when you use AI in a clinical trial, how it's been developed. You know, I think we need more of that. We need to see more enforcement, um, you know, uh, and more calling out when people are using black boxes and secret bias data to, to do things that really affect them. Thank you very much for that. What a great example of co-creation between engineers and patients to finish on. On this episode of The Evidence Space, we've learned more about how engineers and patients can collaborate together effectively. 
One of the areas that we've explored is the impact that COVID has had on this collaboration and what it means in terms of focusing on devices which can collect data from patients in their own home environment rather than having to bring them into clinical centres. We've talked more about PPI or public patient involvement, how this is a truly integral part of the design process and the collaboration, not just a box ticking exercise. Finally, we've looked at some of the pros and cons of developing new healthcare technologies around widely available consumer technology, such as mobile phones, versus situations where it might make more sense to develop something bespoke from the ground up. We hope that you found today's episode useful. As always, if you have questions about this episode or suggestions for topics or guests for future episodes, please get in touch with us. Thank you very much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.